let's talk about Adam. Um, mm. So, so was Adam a real person? Uh, I think that's really uh, where this conversation irreducibly goes when we have it in our n normal discourse. Um, so was Adam a real person in any sense? Uh, would we recognize him as human? And what did that look like? And I think both sides have to sort of under, to, to answer that. He did, did he look like me? Of course, I'm the archetypal uh, image of man outside of Jesus, of course, because I don't want to be sacrilegious here. But um, what did ancient Adam, if he was a literal uh, person, uh, look like? And does the does the Bible then require a literal Adam to be an actual uh, person, a real person, or that he just simply be the ancestor of humanity? So uh, let's let's kick that around and. Um, uh, we'll stick with a normal course of things. Brad and Shane haven't had a chance to chat in a while, but uh, Sarah, go ahead. And this is the problem of trying to have this discussion in three hours. You think it's going to be a long time and it goes by very quickly. Yeah. So I don't mean to rush you all, uh, but uh, I'm going to rush you. So a little bit quickie, quicker, <laughs> but go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> uh, re repeat the exact question. Sorry, was Adam a real person in any sense that we would recognize as human? And what did that look like? And does the Bible require that Adam be a real person or that he's just merely the simple, simply the ancestor of humanity? Um, Make it snappy. Adam, yeah, Adam was a real person. Uh, I guarantee it. As far as I can guarantee anything, I give you the, yeah. the T.S. Hamilton seal of approval on Adam being a real person. Um, uh, but as to whether he was a human in a way that we would recognize, I think that's a more interesting question because species is a modern scientific means of classification. Um, obviously, there's not enough room in the arc for all of the species that exist today. And there's plenty of independent evidence that there's a lot of change that extends beyond, by the way, what we would call microevolution. Okay, so clearly there's something macro going on in terms of biological change, in terms of what is possible. Llamas and camels can interbreed. Um, and that applies to human beings just as it applies to other animals. The question question is, is it teleological? Is the change that happens to biological organisms, is that innately goal-oriented? Has God endowed the creation mm. with some kind of imminent creativity? And does that apply to man? Because Todd Wood argues that after the flood, there are certain biological triggers which initiate very, very, very rapid periods of diversification on the scale of centuries rather than millions of years. And we see in the fossil record plenty of evidence that there's a huge amount of variety in what is possible with respect to the human uh, form. And the interesting point about this is that the highest level of biological um, and morphological diversity in the human form is found at a site called Dimenisi, because Dimenisi is in modern Georgia, the country of Georgia, and that's just a stone's throw away from Mount Ararat. And if these fossils were found on different continents, they would be classified instantly as different species, which took hundreds of thousands or millions of years to diverge, but they're at the same site. And it looks like here, what we have is an example of a human community at a period of time where those diversification triggers are still operative. So what was Adam? I can say with a high degree of confidence, I can't quite give it the T.S. Hamilton guarantee, but I can say it with a high degree of confidence that he was not a homo sapiens and that he looks a lot different than any human being uh, today would look. Okay, Shane. 
when I sort of uh, asked this question, I was thinking in um, very theological terms. I know we've sort of classified this as more of a scientific one, but um, I'm interested primarily in the theological implications of the mm. of the scientific question. I think that there is, you know, a lot of the interesting stuff that Todd Wood is doing with um, the concept of, of human diversity is fascinating. But um, for me, you know, I'm thinking in terms of the typical story of the history of mankind, the um, the typical scientific understanding. And this goes back to my point about the resolution of things, where I think a lot of uh, theistic evolutionists, and we don't, we don't have anyone really representing that full-blown view here, so um, I'll be careful to, to portray it in a charitable way. But if we, if we had, um, say, a, a Tim Keller in here, and we asked him, okay, what, what was Adam? What did he look like? What, you know, what do you think, where do you think he fits in the actual history of, of mankind scientifically? And um, I think that given his, his view, first of all, I don't think he's probably considered it in any serious depth. Um, that's part of that's a function of his profession. Part of that's a function of the fact that uh, I think theistic evolutionists often don't think about this very deeply. Um, or, and I'm not imputing this to anyone in particular, but I know there is a tendency out there to just say, I don't really care about the existence of Adam because I've so spiritualized the text that I view the fall uh, narrative as simply a sort of um, symbolic communication of some kind of shift in the consciousness of human beings as a population that took place vis-a-vis uh, -vis God and you know brought about a change from the original intention of things. But the, the, in the story of Genesis, um, and the, the New Testament authors, especially Paul, make very extensive use out of this as a sort of historical uh, setup. The things that are happening here are supposed to carry historical weight, and we base doctrines upon them. Um, one of those things is the fact that Adam and Eve are created to enjoy immortality right? There are different ideas about exactly how that works, but it seems to have something to do with the, the tree of life. They are not going to die. They're going to enjoy physical immortality. Um, the other, another point is that these are the first people. A uh, lot rides on the fact that these are um, the universal progenitors of the human race because their children have a problem. This is the historic doctrine of original sin. And so um, if, Adam is, if Adam represents the first person, he is living and existing at a fundamentally different mode than we are because he's not degenerating and dying uh, or not intended to at any rate, um, then that doesn't mesh at all with the standard story of, uh, of human origins, of there being by you know, this point in history, if we take the genealogies in a straightforward historical sense, by this point in history, very recently, uh, it would make Adam uh, an archaeological contemporary of like the ancient... Uh, Mesopotamians or something. Um, so he's not the father of everybody. Um, number two, he's not nearly far, you know, he's not nearly far enough back to be a, any kind of universal progenitor. There are guys already hanging out in Mesoamerica, building pyramids and cutting people's hearts out, you know, when Adam <laughs> is supposed to have taken. So that's why Craig pushes him back. But I think more importantly, um, Adam cannot plausibly represent from, from any serious, you know, uh, secular scientific standpoint, something approaching what the bible portrays him as as an as a as an immortal being you know as a creature that um that gives rise even to beings who aren't quite immortal but have extremely supernaturally godlike long lifespans something is going on here that 
seems to be happening on a on a totally different level than the typical understanding of of earth or not earth history but uh, paleoanthropology right and so craig tries to marry these two together and identify where on the timeline something like this happened uh something that that we could even say is similar to this enough that it carries theological freight that we can we can assign things to it like paul does um and i don't I don't, I've not heard a, a convincing uh, effort to harmonize them. I think that there has, I, I go back to that fundamental like reworking of the whole paleoanthropological story along a young earth creationist uh, lines, because I, I don't think you have like, like, for instance, you know, one of the questions I raised in the original wording was part of the um, toolkit of sin that the world, the flesh, and the devil imposes on us things like murdering and 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 promiscuity and thievery and masturbation and, and and all this stuff is common to the animal world. Like this is just how animals behave, right? And so the secular mind looks at that and says, human beings do that stuff because it's what animals do, and we're just animals. Well, the Christian says that those things are actually um, privations their brokenness in the, in the fabric of human nature uh, and they need to be set right. And that's not how God originally intended us to be. It seems to me the theistic evolutionist or anyone who doesn't want to radically rework paleoanthropology to incorporate Adam in there as the Bible has him has to say, well, actually God created us as that kind of creature. We are thieving, polygamous, murderous, masturbatory, like what all the crazy stuff that chimps do, that's us. That's our natural default setting. At some point in mythological time, you know, God imposes something on that on top of that and says, now you're going to be different. But then we fell back into it. I guess that's the that that would be what a Tim Keller would have to say about this. Um, if he just accepts the straightforward story of human origins. And that to me poses like a galaxy of theological problems that um, I don't think most most low resolution readers of Genesis have even begun to grapple with. And so I'll shut up now, but that is my, that's my basic instinct on it and why I asked the question, not to say that the, the, the young earth creationists science on this is advanced enough to the point where I, I can say, yep, that is objectively a more convincing case than the secular understanding. But because I think there has to be such a strong break here, it's not easy to just gloss over it and say, yeah, we can solve all these problems. That's just easy. Yeah. And just for the record, those concerns, Shane, for me are the biggest uh, when it comes to this conversation. They resonate with me um, almost intuitively on a moral and theological register. So, uh, all right. So, Bradley. Yeah. So, I'll talk about all the Adam stuff, <clears throat> like yes. all the Adam stuff. So, <laughs> yes. there certainly must have been an historical Adam, biological progenitor of all mankind uh not you know genetic adam the way some people talk about it where all living people happened to have descended from this one ancient grandfather but all all creatures you could ever call human had to have come from this guy called adam because primarily that's how jesus and the apostles talk about adam you just can't get around hermeneutically Jesus and the apostles talking about Adam in that way. It is an absolute hermeneutical requirement that we affirm an historical Adam in that sense. It's not necessarily <clears throat> doctrinally problematic to say 
there's something more fuzzy about Adam. Uh, like maybe Tim Keller, if you pressed him, might say, well, he was like, well, Craig thinks head. he's fuzzy. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm not fuzzy on Adam in that sense. Like I think it's just straightforward, simple Adam. Uh, the only question is when, and, but if someone got more fuzzy about Adam and said, oh, he was the federal head of his tribe or something like that. Um, that's, I guess you could still have the important doctrines like original sin and whatnot, because we're not descended from Abraham and Jesus either and have that kind of headship with them covenantally. But it's kind of a moot point because even if doctrinally it's not so problematic necessarily to get fuzzy about Adam, it is hermeneutically an insurmountable obstacle. You've got to affirm an historical Adam. <clears throat> and uh, I think you've got to say that he was uh, immortal, providentially immortal. I don't think he would, biblically, it doesn't seem that he was inherently constitutionally immortal. He apparently needed the tree of life to keep living uh, eternally. <clears throat> In other words, I think if hypothetically Adam you know, fell off a cliff or something, he would have died and been crushed, but he would never have fallen off a cliff because A, he would never have made that sinful or crazy decision to jump off a cliff and B, God would never have let it happen on accident. Uh, mm. And he's, he's, so he's not falling off cliffs and he's eating the tree of life and living forever. Um, but he's got a creation 1.0 body that's not constitutionally moral. It's not the same as Jesus's resurrection body. Jesus's resurrection body does seem to be constitutionally different. It's flesh, but it's there's something different about Jesus's body. The normal rules don't seem to apply. I, I think that uh, Jesus's resurrection body was what Adam was supposed to eventually get at some point or other, but he wasn't initially created yes. with the creation yeah. 2.0 body. Um, but nevertheless, theologically, it's very important to say he was providentially immortal. He would never have died without that sin that he committed. Uh, and he did commit sin, and he, he was holy um, and righteous and did not have sin nature. Um, and because he sinned, now his, he and his kids do, et cetera. Traditional doctrine there. Um, I agree with Seraphim in terms of what he looked like there's no telling how tall or short or skin color or head shape like he could have been super weird looking um physically speaking he could have been um not at all like the people we're imagining today but that's not very important theologically um what's important is that there's an unbridgeable supernatural gap between adam and whatever came before adam like even so I'm inclined to say that Adam is, in some sense, related to apes, um, not in the sense of naturally arising from them by some process of evolution randomly or whatnot, or even some Lamarckian process, but uh, more in the sense maybe that God took an ape and um, transformed it in significant ways um, and said, now this is Adam. And the important thing I would maintain there is um, there would be a creational transformation there. Adam, after that happened, after God's breathing humanity into Adam, he would, Adam would not 
know, look at his mom and dad and, and be like, mom, dad, there's something different about you. You know, like, why, why can't I, why am I allowed to eat you now? You know, um, <laughs> and they just fling he, poo back at him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, he would have been like, oh, I am now existing for the first time. <clears throat> and I am happy to hunt those creatures and eat them because they're just animals. I mean, insofar as you and I would be comfortable hunting chimps. I'm not super comfortable with that, but you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, me neither. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to get I mean, canceled on the podcast because we advocate <laughs> chimp hunting. Uh, <laughs> well, in dire circumstances, yes. Hunt yeah. the chimps and eat them. But well, you not- know, it's interesting. Oh, sorry. So right before we go to you, Joe, um, I, I, you said uh, you talked about Jesus's resurrected body, Brad. And uh, it reminds me of the great divorce when Lewis talks about the pain that the uh, people that show up in purgatory feel when they're in heaven of the grass and just like the sharp edges of reality. I almost think that's like you get the accounts in the New Testament of Jesus just passing through doors. And a lot of people are like, that's because he's this sort of like wispy spirit you know body it's like he's more real than the door is yeah uh and that's why you can pass through it so i think you're right that uh that that body is probably different it's the body that adam would have gotten had he been obedient to the to the commands in the garden um yeah and then the the whole planet would have been glorified uh in in my theological tradition that's what i think but one more thought of the Adam, Adam versus the other apes. So the, the only real challenge uh, scientifically with trying to maintain that Adam's biological progenitor, uh, progenitor of all humanity is all the genetic diversity that we see today. There's a lot more genetic diversity than you would expect given the time frames that most people have in mind with the generations of humanity. Um, <clears throat> But you can get around that stuff. There are creative solutions for that. Um, like, uh, like one that Seraphim mentioned as a young earther, uh, maybe there are mechanisms for just fast forwarding that genetic diversity that are inherent in this. Or, or you can say maybe Adam was just a long time ago, uh, like way longer than most people think, like a few million years ago, in which case, well, anything goes at that point in terms of genetic diversity and descent. Mm. <clears throat> Or you can say something which is actually kind of a, a possibility regardless. Uh, maybe Adam's descendants bred with the apes um, sinfully, uh, bestiality in other words. Uh, I, personally, I think that in Genesis 6, you have angels breeding with humans and therefore I don't necessarily have a philosophical obstacle in my mind against humans breeding with animals it's sinful and wrong but i can't say that it's impossible even today it's not uh it's not been conclusively proven whether humans and chimps are capable of interbreeding that might just barely be possible um and i thank god that that has not been conclusive proven (laughs) yeah um I'd say that just to make the point. Hopefully so, the NIH doesn't uh, get grant money for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we haven't yeah. quite decided what we're going to do with chimps on this podcast, have we? You're going to eat them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. All that to say, there's, right. that would insert a lot of genetic diversity potentially. And there's basically, there's no strong scientific reason one way or the other to deny a biological straightforward atom. Uh, 
it only becomes difficult if you become uh, really narrow-minded and committed to prevailing consensuses. Consensus. What's the plural of consensus? I don't know. Consensus. Consensus. <laughs> consensus. Yes. All right. So, Joe, Brad, what, here's, what a, you... here's a quick question. Follow up on that. If we're because because I'm thinking of the different branches, of the human family tree. I'm thinking of the, of the Denisovans. I'm thinking of Neanderthals. I'm thinking of Homo erectus. All these different um, you know skeletons that have been kind of classified in this way. Homo habilis, um, Homo heidelbergensis, who I think is the the species that. Um, the Craig. putative species that that Craig picks as yeah. Adam's uh, as Adam's group. Um, if you're looking at the timeline of all of these and you're kind of accepting that timeline, you got to put Adam before all of this. And you mentioned on the scale of like millions of years. What? Um, how do you read if you're committed to something like a historical reading of Genesis one through eleven? You, you, there is a historical core there. How would you read the genealogy where it sees Adam immediately going into these ancestors if there's like a gap of literally millions of years of diversification in there? And how are the oral traditions preserved as well? I'm, I'm interested in the same, along the same lines. Yeah. So if, as I tentatively think at the moment, if Adam's uh, in the very distant past, I mean, a few million years in terms of conventional geology, maybe several hundred thousand because radiometric dating is not very reliable, et cetera. Um, if he's living in the Mediterranean basin and Noah's flood is the largest flood in world history that fills up the Mediterranean basin. And, and you got the four rivers in Eden uh, that actually do go in. They, they go up out from the Mediterranean basin historically. So that's interesting. If you got that in the tower of Babel after that, if all those, uh, universal anthropological events like the flood and Babel are really far back <clears throat> in the past, then yeah, my biggest problem becomes the genealogies in Genesis 5, actually, especially the genealogies in Genesis 11, once it goes from Tower of Babel to Abraham. Uh, it's actually not even that big a problem, the Genesis 5 genealogies, if I'm placing both Noah and Adam that far back. Uh, but Genesis 11 genealogy, that becomes... Uh, difficult. And I, I don't know how to interpret that right now. I just have to say, well, I think those are symbolic and uh, the original audience and author would have said this is symbolic somehow, but I'm not satisfied with that answer. So I, I do think that um, those things are historical and had to have been historical. Oh, and in terms of the uh, oral histories, um, probably if this is true um, on the, in this theory, those would have uh, actually re-arisen. So those would not be oral histories that are faithfully transmitted, but those would be like um, Balaam, the prophet of the Australian Aborigines said, here's what happened with Noah's flood in the Tower of Babel. And uh, you do have uh, legitimate non-Israelite prophets in various places. And it's not absurd that they would have uh, occasionally reminded everyone about what happened a long time ago. Um, that's where I stand currently, at least. It, it's interesting, just really briefly, um, related to the issue of oral traditions. I haven't seen this raised in any Young Earth Creationist publication, but they need to because it's incredibly striking. There's some recent anthropological research on the characters, as in the symbols that are used in Stone Age cave paintings. Because when you look at these cave paintings, most people, 
your eye is drawn to the actual painting. But if you know like the handprint symbol, that's a symbol that's actually found on all um, continents which had human inhabitants in the Stone Age. And using conventional dating, those symbols, they're about 28 to 30 uh, symbols which are found on every inhabited continent and they remain consistent for tens of thousands of years but we know because we have in terms of historical time how fast a, a script tends to change and it looks like if you just take the conventional uh, time scale that for some reason even though nobody's in contact with each other you've got these cavemen in in Africa and you've got these cavemen in America they're using the same symbols for tens of thousands of years and then suddenly at the same time you have cities that are built in all of a sudden all that changes and 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 uh, change habits much more rapidly. I think it's one of those prima facie indicators like the issue of oral traditions that we have an issue with our time scale. All right, so Joe, um, talk to us about historical Adam there, my brother. Yeah, my my um, my view on this is probably somewhat similar to 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 what Brad just said. I would I would default uh, by reading the text. Uh, to take Adam as the biological progenitor of the human race. Um, I don't see any reason to deny that. My guess is it's, my guess is if I were to, I, I, well, I don't even want to make a guess. If I were to identify a historical referent for it, I would probably wind up having a project fairly similar to Bill Craig's. And it, you know, my, the conclusion might be the same. When do you see evidence of like spiritual soul and this sort of thing? But like Bradley, you know, and that might put you in the hundreds of thousands of years ago. There's also Swamidas's view, which is, which is interesting and, and creative. And I think he's careful in some ways. I, I, you know, I don't want to, I, I won't go there though. Craig's is neater because you really do get one atom sort of of all of all, anything you ever want to call human as the ancestor. In that sense, uh, you know, I want to say that to, you know, uh, also note, uh, uh, I actually don't think Tim Keller has not thought about this that much. I think his view is actually more sophisticated than most people give him credit for. Uh, because I'm so opposed to Keller bashing, not that Shane does that. Shane is also opposed to Keller bashing, by the way. He's gone to bat for uh, our good boy, Tim. Uh, but I wanted to flag that, that I think he's, he's just he's just such a good whipping boy for political reasons that I think are The weird. only reason so, I said that was because I found his treatment of it in Reason for God uh, singularly Oh, shallow. it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. He does have a couple of articles where he's more careful i think okay. not not in a it's not going to satisfy it's not going to change anybody's mind i don't think but it's better i'd say than the average handling of the issues that you find with um uh uh which is you know characteristic him um so you know very 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 uh my default is to say old adam for the same reasons everybody else has said here um um flood I, I, I am fairly skeptical of a universal flood. We could go to exegetical reasons for that. Oddly, I'm very suspicious. <laughs> I'm actually somewhat suspicious that maybe Genesis even slows down by the account of the flood, because another option is that you have a non-anthropologically universal flood uh, 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 that uh, nevertheless is massive in a particular region. And so there's this very interesting guy, for instance, named, um, I'm looking it up real quick to make sure I get this right. Uh, oh, it went away. Never mind. I won't find it. There's a very interesting um, historian of geology, uh, a kind of an archaeological archaeological geologist 
who uh, looks at flood accounts and takes them very seriously. Uh, so what he does is says, where where you know, let's imagine that all of the details and all these accounts are exactly correct. If this local tradition says the waters flew in here from the west. I'm going to take it seriously. If this local tradition says everybody ran up the hill as opposed to got in a boat, I'm going to take that seriously. And then he actually sort of constructed a model to say, here is a bunch of flood stories from this massive region. Uh, and uh, if it, what event would make all of those stories true? What if it's not all, what if it's uh, one event, but the, the local responses to the event are different? Uh, and what if the, the, the myths or not myths, what if the stories are preserving real historical memory of what diverse people did in a massive region? And he actually was able to look, he basically said, if I can try and here, here's what all the evidence says, what would happen if that was consistent? Well, the only thing I can think of that would make that happen is if a big comet crashed into the ocean in about 2900 BC, you know, which fits actually the genealogies of Genesis fairly well, you know, 2900, 3000 BC is typically when people date the flood. Maybe it's, that's off a bit, uh, but, uh, but he uh, then predicted, if that's true, maybe I will actually find a comet of about this size under the Indian Ocean right here. And he dug, he did satellite work, stared under the Indian Ocean and found exactly that, which we, when we talk about prediction and the prior probability of finding such a thing, it's quite significant and interesting. Uh, uh, so, it, you know, it's possible to me, actually, the flood is a uh, weirdly even more recent than, um, you know, the Black Sea flood, in that most of what you have from Noah on is actually uh, just is, is significant to the Mediterranean world, whereas what you have in Adam reaches much further back and, is, and has a more cosmic scope. And that the cosmic grammar of Noah takes on a theological significance. And we could, you know, we could talk more about specifics there. Obviously, all of that breaks down into an, an, a numerous amount of specifics. I don't think there's, uh, yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot more I'd, I'd say there. But effectively, theological, you know, I, I, I like what Bradley said. On the one hand, we're, and I think the way even Shane said it, what really matters to me here is the theological significance. I think it's very theologically significant to say that there's a historical Adam who is the father of the human race, second Adam, et cetera, et cetera. Discussion of immortality, the Garden of Eden. Uh, um, um, yeah, what model you need to have to be orthodox and to preserve those theological distinctives. Yeah, that's a different yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's a, a nice little segue. Um, into our, we're going to start to wind down here. We're coming to the end of our time together. Uh, and this has already been a very, very, very good conversation. So thank you all. Uh, but let's talk about the theological implications. Um, lots of people in sort of conservative evangelical circles will say that if you take an approach to old earth, uh, then you're it impacts the gospel in some way. Uh, and Bradley talked about federal headship, right? If, if we don't have an actual historical Adam that is the original ancestors, ancestor of all humanity um, that represented us, he was a public figure before the face of God and in his fall of sin, 
uh, spread the germ of sin to all those that come after him. And, and the cure is the last Adam who uh, keeps God's law perfectly and therefore imputes that righteousness uh, to all of God's uh, people. When you, that's a sort of symmetry that you have between the first and the last. But what are the theological uh, non-negotiables when we talk about protology? And how do we decide those, again, in a way that's not merely ad hoc? So um, I think that this is really what people are initially concerned about when it comes to this conversation. And the bulk of what we've talked about up to this point is uh, the glacier under the water. Mm. Uh, the thing that people initially move towards is you don't, you don't, are you saying you don't affirm a historical atom? And if you do, are you saying that historical atom is some sort of subspecies of, uh, of uh, a human that then became a, a human that's a composite whole of a reasonable soul and a human body? Uh, because if you say that, that has implications for a ton of our systematic understanding of theology. Um, so what are the theological non-negotiables, Sarah? And uh, how do we decide those without being, without, in a way that's not just ad hoc? Yeah, I think um, uh, the first thing to say is that it depends on what context we're using the word non-negotiable in. Like some people will hear this, for, you hear this. In, in usually kind of evangelical circles, it, it, is it a salvation issue? Um, but that's not really the question that I'm interested in asking. I mean, I'm not even, go I'm not going to tell someone who even thinks Moses never existed, oh, you're going to hell. I mean, I think it's incredibly dangerous, but uh, there are different kinds of theological significance. We're saved in Christ and Christ is the Lord of the whole world. And all of the stuff that we say about these issues has its center in the person of Christ. And in a sense, if Jesus is the pearl of great price, you have this architecture that's designed to point you to the center and guide you to that pearl and keep it above ground and focus you on it. But it's that doesn't mean that everything in the room is identical to the pearl of great price. The major issues that I see, number one, we want to preserve the intimacy of God's relationship with the real concrete world that we live in right now. So when we talk about, um, uh, the, the, the symbolic character of the narratives in Genesis, and we talk about all of the details which have these innate meanings. I want to preserve that, uh, it's absolute historicity because I think it's meant to be historical, but because I think if we understand them to be historical and meaningful in that way, it leads us to ask different questions of our life. It leads us to diff ask different questions of world affairs. It leads us to ask different questions of church history, questions which give us very important answers, which can be used for our sanctification and can be used to build up our trust in God. Um, number two, I think it's really important that we understand the uh, anthropocentric nature of the cosmos in a, mm -hmm. uh, in a very deep and real way. So the traditional idea that you found across a whole variety of world cultures is that sacrifice keeps the world going. If you stopped sacrificing, the world would disappear into nothing. And I think that that's true before the coming of Christ, before God tied himself to the stuff of creation in such a way that creation participates in God's absolute existence and cannot be destroyed. Before that, 
it was sacrifice that God used to keep the world going because all things exist in God and were the image of God. So God freely partnered with man in sustaining the stuff of creation. So look at what happens right before the flood. You have the righteous line of Seth, but they fall in. And I agree that these, this is angelic human intermarriage, but I think it's specifically with the line of Seth. Uh, you have this righteous line of Seth who are calling on the name of the Lord. That's sacrificial terminology. You have the Cainites who are, uh, who are nasty. And then you only have one family left. And what happens when well, there's no more sacrifice or almost no more sacrifice and the world simply collapses in on itself. Fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of heaven are open and everything falls apart uh, because man was not ordered in relation to God through sacrifice in order to keep it in existence. Now, if we understand the relationship of the world to man in that way, then that's going to have implications for how we understand things like animal death. And Brad has pointed out in some of our conversations that in the tradition of the church, even before Lyell, there are a variety of views on whether uh, animals died before the fall. And there's also questions like, what do we mean by death? I mean, if an animal goes into a very peaceful, painless sleep, uh, from which he will wake up one day. Is that death? Well, perhaps, but it's not what we would call death. It's not being ripped apart painfully screaming while your uh, while your mom and dad look on. Um, that's that's a different issue. Um, but if we understand man as the vessel through which God communicates life to the world and through which he wants to expand the dominion of life on uh, out to the farthest edges of creation, well, then I think we have to say, or were led to say that the kind of life Adam had was communicated simply according to the wiring of the universe to the rest of creation. And that's why the revelation of the sons of God in the resurrected Christ on the final day is the hope of all creation. And I think if we, if we, if we look at 13.7 billion years of cosmic history where there's no human being in the world and things are basically plodding along with no sacrifice, nothing, I think that has uh, downstream theological implications that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that we often don't appreciate. And then that anthropocentrism ultimately guides us to Christocentrism because Christ is the man. Hmm. Shane, what do you think about that, brother? Uh, I don't have a terrible amount to add to that because Seraphim stole all my points. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the answer, I will zoom in on the anthropocentrism thing real quickly. Um, I, I have interviewed uh, British historian Tom Holland on the Upstream podcast. And, and one of the things that he says that I found fascinating in both his book, Dominion, and in our conversation, he reiterated it, is that one of his big hangups to belief in God, he's an atheist, despite his admiration for Christianity, is that uh, he, he looks at this 13 plus billion year history of, Earth, mm. uh, of Earth's life um, and, and the amount of time that complex organisms have existed in that, uh, the continual processes of uh, mass extinctions, the turnover, the uh, apparently purposeless evolution to where by the time you get to the Holocene, our time, um, 98 plus percent of all living organisms that have ever existed on the planet are gone forever. There, some of the remains are preserved in stone. And he says, I can't reconcile that with the idea that the world is created by a God who has a purpose for things, because the, objectively, it looks like the vast, vast majority of Earth history was so utterly purposeless. 
and led to nowhere. You can't even say like that was the, the process of God evolving the forms that would eventually re reach their perfection in our time. Because I'm sorry, major divisions of the vertebrate family tree are gone. They just don't exist anymore. <laughs> like mm. the whole uh, the whole um, therapsid group is completely wiped out. The dinosaurs are gone. They didn't go anywhere. I mean, you could say they're, they're birds, but um, most of the groups of dinosaurs are completely gone. So the pointlessness of that um, and the, the difficulty that he has in drawing that into a theistic story, I think has real teeth. Um, when, when the Bible talks about um, the world being created with this goal of humanity and humanity being central in some really uh, mysterious way to the world. And even talks about how when, when Jesus is asked about marriage, he says it was not so from the beginning. And he even says from the beginning of creation. Um, and that phrase is repeated, I think, in, in Paul somewhere. This, this idea that man has always coexisted with the world um, is, is really strongly assumed in, in the New Testament. And I wouldn't, I don't know that you can say that's a theological non-negotiable because then you got to excommunicate all the, you know, old earthers. <laughs> but I think that the sentiment behind that of the, the anthropocentrism, the idea that humanity is core to this whole story um, and that the world must exist in some real sense for us uh, is a non-negotiable. Um, and all of, a lot of other non-negotiables emerge out of that, including the ties, the theological ties between Adam and Christ. And so that's, that's what I would add there. Okay, Bradley. Um, yeah, okay. So whether or not something is a non-negotiable seems more like a, a spectrum <clears throat> question, which is kind of what the other guys said. Uh, it's, you could say, well, what's what's non-negotiable for being an ordained minister in my denomination? What's a non-negotiable for um, being a member at the church? What's a non-negotiable for who I'm willing to even say, I guess that's a Christian still? <laughs> um, and or or just what's a non-negotiable in a whole different sense in terms of, well, that's an unacceptably slippery slope logically even if you don't happen to slide down that slippery slope it is non-negotiably slippery <laughs> that's right. also another category yeah. and i think uh a person does need to affirm uh original sin creation ex nihilo um the, those big basic doctrines or else they start to have uh doctrinal slippery slope problems like the, your systematic theology doesn't even make sense anymore if you start to deny those things um i was mentioning earlier how maybe someone can get fuzzy as a thought experiment on whether we're all descended biologically from adam and still maintain original sin and i guess you can do that um a better example might be uh you could have aliens somewhere out there who are not descended from Adam. Um, and uh, those aliens might travel to earth and say, you know, we, our prophets have told us to come because the creator came here as one of you and we seek his salvation or something like that. <clears throat> and you could have these, and, and maybe those aliens had- Literally take us to your leader. 
Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we heard that you killed him or something. Yeah. Um, so you you could have maybe some aliens doctrinally who are not descended from Adam and we would consider them to be men for all the reasons that, uh, for all the criteria that matter theologically, we think of them as human because they're talking to us, even if they look like octopuses or something. Um, and it's conceivable that they would be saved by the blood of Christ also, even though they're not descended from Adam and had their own octopus Adam who sinned or something like that. You know, that's not uh, unacceptable doctrinally if that happens in the future. Uh, hmm. And nor would it contradict anything uh, biblically either, I think. I haven't thought tons about that hypothetical, but <laughs> mm-hmm. despite appearances, uh, but <clears throat> you, yeah. So there, there are doctrines like that that get uh, systematically incoherent if you start to deny them. There are hermeneutical problems, like I mentioned. You hermeneutically, you're just being unfaithful to scripture if you don't affirm X. Um, and there are uh, emphases. Like Shane and Seraphim are mentioning, you do have to maintain that creation is anthropocentric. You, you can't just say, oh, man is stupid uh, to think that he is the center of creation or, or whatnot. You have to say biblically that that's the case, that that's all over scripture. <clears throat> I don't think that uh, natural evil, uh, so-called, is actually evil. Uh, even when I was a young earther, James Jordan and Peter Lightheart convinced me that uh, animal death and suffering did exist before the fall, that those things are not a result of sin or Adam's fall, that Leviathan was already out there being Leviathan before Adam sinned. He's mentioned, I mean, the, the sea monsters are mentioned in Genesis chapter one as being created. Um, you, for, so for various biblical reasons, which are probably not the conversation we need to have now. I think that is the biblical uh, position that animal death and suffering existed because of the fall and also that they're not going to exist uh, later in creation 2.0, that these, what we have is a creation that is subjected to groaning. Uh, We have futility. We have a, a childbirth in creation where God made this creation pregnant god god made the animals uh suffering like this and the childbirth wasn't supposed to take this long but we sinned and messed it up and now the childbirth is going to take longer and it's going to be a worse childbirth but they're waiting been increased right exactly Mm -hmm. and they're awaiting the glorious redemption of the sons of god and so on that's what they're waiting for because that's when it was always going to end when adam got his when 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 creation was going to be upgraded, that was always the plan and it's still going to happen. It just got slowed down. Um, and I, so I don't think that natural evil being a result of sin is a non-negotiable. I don't even think that's true. Even when I was a young earther, I didn't think that was true. Uh, Aquinas and Augustine, there, there are a minority of theologians historically in church history, well before the evolution debate who affirm that to be true. It is a minority position. There's the, ma- the majority position historically seems to be um, that there was animal death, but it wasn't like suffering animal death. Um, mm-hmm. And most people, frankly, historically didn't even talk about it in their writings before the modern era. It's like 
it's almost like people didn't care as much about animals back then. I don't know. That's <laughs> because they anyways. didn't have designer puppies yeah. uh, to, to put yeah. in their carriages and carry Something around. to, yes. I, I do think probably the modern era and our increased sensitivity towards, towards animals and the, the prevalence of nature documentaries and things like that. And just the doctrine of uh, evolution, messing up things and perverting things. It makes people think about animal death in a way that Christians before the 1800s just didn't think about it that much. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Joe, non-negotiables. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, certainly the non-negotiable to me is that Adam is not just a descendant from whatever came before him. Um, so, you know, the idea that, you know, the Bible says Adam's made from the dust of the ground. And I suppose that's not too too much dirtier to me than saying Adam came from a common ancestor with a chimp. Uh, I'm not saying that's what the, that symbol means in the Bible. I'm just saying the the underlying structure uh, is not necessarily dissimilar to me. But nevertheless, what what makes Adam Adam is this moment in which God does this breathing into him, the breath of life. And then he's a living creature. He's a, a, you know, in the tradition, a rational soul. And it's interesting. Shane mentioned like, you know, this notion that theistic evolutionists talk about like Adam sort of descends in back into an animal state. That's a fairly traditional. Uh, I mean, just in kind of the tradition of moral philosophy and in the history of the church way to talk about us actually becoming sinful. It's in the scriptures you become like an the rational animal precisely in rejecting the end of the rational soul through knowledge and desire, which is God, uh, uh, descends into a privated state in, and behaves like an animal, which is fine for an animal, but our animal nature, you might say, sort of like becomes the dominant nature whose God is their belly, you know, Paul will go on to say, well, if an animal follows their belly more than anything, that's fine because they're animals. Uh, but that, that's a long-winded way of saying actually that motif of kind of descent into animality is a very, I think, a classical metaphor. Um, I, I Mostly what I'm going to say is just a historical Adam and original sin. I mean, those are the, th and the distinction, and I think Sarah's point, the, the centrality of man I think is an absolutely uh, a, a cosmic centrality of man. And oddly, despite us disagreeing on precisely how it plays out, I think the centrality of the symbolism even <laughs> uh, in some ways is, is non-negotiable. Though I think, I think somebody like a Jim Jordan, for instance, just becomes sort of ideological with it. I think, I think the way he plays with symbolism in history winds up functioning ideologically, even though I think there are dimensions of reality that that map on to what I think he's trying to do with symbolism. But anyway, last thing I'll say, one, one thing we haven't talked about is the role of angels uh, in biology, <laughs> maybe for another podcast. But, you know, there's also the church father discussion of whether mosquitoes are really from the devil. You know, <laughs> you know, that might actually play into, you know, what what is going on in the evolutionary record and what's their, you know, you know, quote, quote, before the fall. Last thing I'd say, I suppose, just on this, you know, kind of 13.7 billion years with nothing going on. Possibly one way of looking at that is actually just to say you don't have creation really until man is here, because that is the finishing touch. The, the, it, 
creation isn't done in Genesis on day four or day five or day six. I mean, he's done making it on day six. And so however long that maps on and the way we're measuring time, we could just say creation really does begin in its final state when rational souls are entered into man in this Edenic paradisical state. But um, there was no one to hear all those trees falling down, so they didn't. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was no mouthpiece of the cosmos. There was no Heideggerian gathering of consciousness or whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, but uh, taking that 13.7 billion number, it's interesting to me to think of Lewis project as, as Ward has shown is to sort of show how the medieval cosmos still speaks, the, the, the metaphysical structures and historical and moral and, and, and just historical structures that that cosmology is, is trying to speak to us, it still speaks to us even now. And one of the ways he does that is by correcting the imagination that space is just a bunch of empty stuff, right? That's, that's punctuated by an occasional cool thing. But it's also, I think what he's trying to do in the space trilogy in a way is, uh, he, he recognizes at the end of the discarded image, right? Uh, the, the old cosmology is in some respects not, not what we thought it was. Look, there's more galaxies out there. Like minimally, what we think is going on beyond this, the, you know, sort of the outer sphere of the planet, minimally, there's more there than we thought. And I think in one sense, what you could imagine the imagination of Lewis is doing is saying, I would like us to look up at, look at, uh, take a medieval man's ability to look up at the cosmos and see a cathedral rather than just an empty thing punctuated by an occasional thing. And rather in, in, in marriage to modern cosmology, not that he's married to it in any ideological way, but in principle, actually just see it as the expansion of the cathedral. Uh, and I wonder if a similar thing could be done with, so deep space in, in a sense becomes a, a, just a bigger cathedral than you had imagined. And I wonder if something happens similarly to time, presumably eternity future will be far more trillions of years in the future. And at some point, 13.7 billion years won't even mean a thing. It'll be a fraction of a second of eternity. Uh, and so it, it's unclear to me that that I hear the aesthetic, but it strikes me as that it has the imagination about what's going on in that, in, that, in that time that most modern cosmologists have about what's going on in all of that quote, quote, empty space, but which Lewis would see as punctuated with light, in which I think a hmm. Christian version of this could say is that deep time is punctuated with order, symbolism, meaning, etc. But, you know, one answer to kind of Sarah's objection, where what about the sacrifices? Like, well, the, the finishing touches weren't put on the cosmos yet <laughs> and sacrifice that kind of the logic of sacrifice maintaining the order, which has not arrived yet. Uh, but if you want to get really trippy, just for the audience out there, you can always get take Wolfgang Smith's perspective. Uh, the book is Ancient Wisdom and Modern Misconceptions. Uh, and if you really want to have some weird fun and really go uh, go take a deep dive, you can have a version of six-day creationism that fully accepts modern cosmology, adds a little bit of black holes and relativity into it, and everybody's happy. I don't actually understand it, but he's a smart guy. That's all I'm saying. I, I think actually Wolfgang's Smith, I've heard this. I haven't read him say it direct. I think he's he now no longer accepts relativity. That's what I've heard. Oh, uh, I mean, we almost yeah. made it for it. We almost got a cool, a new cool kids version of six day creation. Another model gone, fellas. He has an interesting essay in um um, what is it? Might be the book you mentioned. 
The Wisdom of Ancient Cosmology. He has an interesting essay on geocentrism in there. I mean, I should say right now, I do not think scripture in any way whatsoever requires geocentrism. That said, I'm not quite sure that I'm not a geocentrist. <laughs> in the in the in the the well yeah okay go ahead say what you mean by that <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it, it, you can um given relativity so assuming relativity is true uh at this point there's no empirical significance to the statement um this is the center and not that you know lewis in space trilogy he talks about we we go into a universe not with no center but a universe where all things are the center um i myself am skeptical i'm not saying i don't believe it i'm skeptical of the idea that the universe is expanding um so it's completely compatible even with conventional physics uh to have an absolute center to the universe which because we haven't reached the outer edge of the cosmos, we can't measure its relation to that outer edge. But it actually doesn't require you to go that nutty with physics. Actually, I think it's a lot less nutty um, than, than, than young Earth creationism. Um, but that was, at least at that point, the kind of geocentrism that Wolfgang Smith was arguing for. But I'm not saying I am a geocentrist. I'm just saying right, right, I'm right, not right, sure right. that I'm not a geocentrist. There is, yes. well, to, to put a, a funny anecdote on this, there, there was, when I was at Catholic University, I was with, I, there was a guy I knew who was, studying with somebody who was a friend of Thomas Kuhn back in the day, you know, famous structures of scientific revolution, you know, the big philosophy of science text. And uh, Kuhn, by that time, what people don't understand is philosoph historians of science are notoriously skeptical about like how certain, you know, contemporary scientific models are. And Kuhn was sort of became this pretty I don't, I'm not sure people really grasp how radical Kuhn really is in saying like, I'm not sure our models tell us anything about what's really there. Well, somebody wound up talking because he was such a historian of, as Dale mentioned, the Copernican revolution. Uh, one of these professors at Catholic was having lunch with him at Princeton and sat him down and finally just said, well, but surely, mm -hmm. surely the earth revolves around the sun. And this is an anecdote. I'm not, but apparently Thomas Kuhn looked at him and said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's a good anecdote to, to end on. Um, let me say, let me say one thing. Uh, when you all were talking about, you all affirmed that, uh, you know, it's sort of the, the focus on man as the pinnacle of creation if we lose that right like that's got to be in the that's that's one of the non-negotiables it's got to be about man it reminded me of a meme that's floating around where the atheist is like oh you've got hundreds and hundreds of trillions of galaxies filled with all of these things all you know uh but yeah the god of all that cares about you and then the base chat is like, I accept the terms, right? Or whatever he says, uh, <laughs> your terms are acceptable. It's like, yes. it's precisely. Um, and I, and I, I, so I'm, I'm glad that I think all of us affirm that. Um, one last thing I'll say, and then I'll take us out is, this has been such a refreshing discourse to have around um, a tricky subject. And I hope that what people will take away from this is a bunch of stuff, but I hope that some people reach the limit of their understanding about what they think they know. And for the ancients, that meant wonder. Uh, when you reach the border of your knowledge and you stare into the abyss of the unknown, that is wonder.
Uh, and the tagline for this show is how uh, human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. And I think that this was a beautiful uh, vision of what that quest for Christian wisdom looks like. Um, so thank you all for participating in this. And I would love to do this again because we have not even barely scratched the surface of uh, what we could talk about. Um, but this was a wonderful example of Christian brothers gathering around uh, that disagree and uh, having a, a charitable conversation about um, human wonder. So thank you. I appreciate you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Shane, Bradley. Thank you, brother. And uh, Joe, I love you. Thank you, man. Until next time, y'all. See ya. Thanks, Dale. Thank you.